All right. I will try to remember that. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. Romans 1, and we're going to read a couple of verses here. And the, the question I'm asking, and I think we know the answer to this already, is is the glory of God and us giving God the glory that he deserves, is that important? Does it matter? Well, of course it does. Um, but I just wanted to highlight these verses, Romans 1 verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So let's pause there. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In other words, God is angry. Uh, he's angry, um, and that wrath is turned towards all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice the next line, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they, they hold the truth down. Uh, and we go on, what are they holding down the truth about? Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, God is angry. He's angry against this unrighteousness and, and this ungodliness because there's a people and people are holding down the truth uh, in unrighteousness. And what is the truth? It's, it's the truth about who God is. Uh, because he says in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest, for God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead so that men are without excuse. So has God done a good job of revealing himself through his creation? Um, the Apostle Paul here is saying, yeah, uh, human beings, humanity is without excuse. Um, what about those who don't have a missionary? No, they've got, they've got the testimony of the heavens uh, to begin with. That, I mean, man is without excuse. They, they, anyone can look to the heavens and, and reason and, and realize there's, there's, this, isn't a, this isn't just you know, evolution at its best. This is, this is the creation, the masterpiece of God on display. Uh, God is, the, the wrath of God is revealed against those who reject um, uh, his display of himself through creation. Um, so the psalmist says in Psalm 46, it's, it's the fool that says in his heart that there is no God. It's, it's the fool that says that there is no God. Because why, why is it the fool? Because, because the evidence is there. Man is without excuse. Um, and so... Those who say there is no God, the scriptures say, are, are a fool because the, the evidence is there for people to believe. So uh, a lot of years ago, I was out for a walk and uh, we live out in the country and it was on a nice quiet road in the evening. The sun was setting behind me. I was walking towards the east and uh, the sky was like black, like just dark, dark, dark uh, rain, some kind of a storm to the east. 
and behind me, the sun, clear sky, and the sun is setting. So you know what happens. There was this amazing rainbow, um, double rainbow, and it wasn't overly big because the sun was going down. So it was this double rainbow, right? Like right, right from horizon to horizon in front of me. And I'm walking towards it, and I'm just thinking, man, this is, this is amazing. It's beautiful. And I was thanking the Lord and all the rest. It, it pointed me to him. All of a sudden, a car comes up beside me. And the guy stops, rolls down the window, and he said, did you see the double rainbow? Like, well, yeah. I mean, I've been walking <laughs> towards it. It's hard to miss it. And, uh, and so he was so excited about this double rainbow. And he's like, I take pictures of, of these kinds of things and video. And he said, I had stopped a while back there and took some pictures. And he was just, he was so over the top excited about it. I thought, I wonder if he's going to try and witness to me. Because like I thought, you know, he's going to lead to something. And, and uh, he's just so excited. And, and uh, so that I thought, well, I'll fish a little bit. And, and I just said, yeah. I said, I've been just walking, enjoying. I said, it makes me think of the one who made it all. And, uh, and he stopped and he looked at me. He said, it's just a phenomenon. And he, and he burned his tires out and took off. It's just a phenomenon. Uh, if we follow the biblical definition, he's a fool. It's the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. When, when it's on display, God's glory is on display in the heavens and we reject it. Um, it's a fool that says in his heart that there is no God. So I didn't read this verse earlier. Second uh, Corinthians 4, this kind of follows up on, on um, the kind of the last point. We look to the, uh, in the first message, the... Uh, we look to the heavens, we see the, the personal glories of God on display, his, the essence of who he is. Uh, we look to the, the person of Christ and we see the moral beauties of God on display, his heart, his character, what he is like. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 4 and, and verse 6, it is God, it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And so that's really summarizing what I was saying earlier. If we, wanna, if we want the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, we look at the face of Jesus Christ. Earlier in that passage, it says, and as we look at him, we will be transformed. Uh, we will be changed from glory to glory as we, as we see his glory. So that's, uh, yeah, the full weight and splendor and beauty of the eternal God of the universe is, is found and is, is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and no clearer picture is, of it is in the cross of Jesus Christ. So how does this, how does this impact us practically? I just want to look at, at, we'll try and get through five things. Go back to Isaiah, or Psalm 8, rather. Psalm 8. As we think of our eternal, glorious God, creator God, Psalm 8, the psalmist was clearly caught up with the, the greatness of God. And Psalm 8 begins, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So he's 
just overwhelmed with the the greatness and the excellency of God. Verse three, when I consider your heavens, that's what we've been talking about. When I consider your heavens, the, and this is it, the work of your fingers, that's <laughs> hard to explain, the work of your fingers, notice uh, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Verse four, what is man that you are mindful of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've made, put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. They pass through the paths of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Psalmist asks the question after he looks up into the heavens and is overwhelmed with the greatness of God. He asks the question, what is man? Well, that's a good question to ask. And a lot of people have asked that question. What is man? Who am I? Uh, where do I come from? Do I have any meaning? Do I have any value? Does my life have any purpose? And you know that the world has a whole range of answers to that question. What is man? Who am I? Well, the, the psalmist says, well, we are people who have the extraordinary privilege of having a God who thinks of us. Notice what he says here, verse four. What is man that you, the, the, this glorious God of the universe, that you are mindful of him? In other words, this creator God, this glorious being who holds a universe in his hands, who humbles himself to behold the things in the heavens. It says here that he's mindful of man. He thinks about us. Can you believe it? The vastness of the universe and we're on this little floating speck in this cosmos and, and yet he thinks about us. Turn to Psalm 40 and we see that come up again in Psalm 40 and verse 5. Psalm 40 verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. That's amazing. This glorious God of the heavens is thinking about us. And, and not just once or twice. So much so that the psalmist says, we can't even count how many times he thinks of us. Is that, is that precious to you this morning? That, that, that this God of heaven who has created us in his image, he's created us with the ability to, to reason and to understand. He's created us with the ability to love and be loved and to have relationships. Um, this God of the heavens is thinking about us. This just totally overwhelmed the psalmist. Uh, an old preacher once said, it should fill us with adoring wonder and reverent surprise that the infinite God of heaven should turn his thoughts towards us. He thinks about us. Remember David's servant 
uh, son of Saul. His name was Mephibosheth, uh, or he was, he was referred to as a servant. He, in 2 Samuel, Mephibosheth said to David, the king, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Um, he realized he's unworthy uh, to be considered and to, to be under the favor of the king. And the psalmist, I think, is feeling the same way. What is, what is man that, that you're mindful? When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what, what is man that you are mindful of, of him? And, and then we read further in Psalm 8. This is the, what I'm really wanting to get at, Psalm 8. Um, he, he goes on. Let's find my place here again. Verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him. You have crowned him. That's man. I, I know there's an aspect that this points towards the Lord Jesus, but this is in a general sense speaking about humanity. It says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. So he's saying here that, that there is a dignity, that there is an honor bestowed on Humanity, because the glorious God of heaven has, has encircled this humanity and given an aspect of, of glory and dignity and value and worth to human beings. So, we, yeah, we, we have this, as, as cr we're created beings, we will always be created beings, but yet God in his his breathtaking grace elevates us to this, this place of, of dignity and honor. We've, we've been, it says, crowned or encircled with, with, with glory. He, he shares something of his glory. And so what's my point here? Um, when we understand something, as the psalmist does here, of the, the splendor and the glory of the creator of the universe, and we understand our participation and our link with him is made in his image, it should elevate our understanding and the, the value of, of a human soul and, and of, of our lives and the lives of those around us, that there's a, a dignity uh, to being created in the image of God. And so you will find uh, a little... Um, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's a, a castaway from society. You can, you can imagine however you want, whether it's a, a physical disability or whether they're a beggar on the street or a, a mental handicap or something like that. And, and our society might look at those individuals and say they're, they're worthless, they have no value. And over here, there's, you know, I just read about a, a racehorse that died here recently, and it, it was used for breeding lots of others. And so it was worth, I, I think it was tens of millions of dollars. And, and what, what God is saying through his word uh, is that, that there is infinitely more value this beggar on the street than whatever man wants to elevate over here. Why? Because God has crowned this being, encircled this being, shares something 
of his glory with the likes of, of a beggar like this, a beggar like me. I was reading uh, some time ago, long time ago, and it was in, a, in the Creation magazine, and it was, it, it was about a man who wrote a biography on William and Catherine Booth, um, the founders of the Salvation Army. So if you've heard of the Salvation Army, and uh, this, this man uh, wrote a, a biography. He was an atheist, interestingly, from the UK. And uh, he was asked the question um, in response to this book he had written and the research he had done on William and Catherine Booth. He said, do you think the Salvation Army is eventually going to run out of steam? It's been around for a long time. Is it going to become insignificant? And he said, I'm an atheist, but I can only look with amazement at the devotion of the Salvation Army workers. I've been on the streets and seen the way they work amongst the people, the most deprived and disadvantaged and sometimes pretty repugnant characters. I don't believe they would do that if not for their religious impulse. I often say I never hear of atheist organizations taking food to the poor. You don't hear of atheist aid, you hear of Christian aid. Now, why is that? Because we understand the, the value that God places on people, wherever they are, whatever class of life, and whatever their human circumstances, we, we understand that there, is, that, there is, that there is something of value to the, the human soul. Another article, or another quotation, I actually went back and found the original article, but this was again in Creation Magazine, but they were quoting um, a man by the name of Matthew Paris. Again, he was a, a politician from the UK, and, and he wrote in the, I think it was the New York Times, maybe the London Times, a newspaper, and, uh, and the, the headline or the, the article was entitled this, um, as an atheist, I believe Africa needs God. So kind of think about that for a minute. As an atheist, that was his conviction, there is no God. Um, but he said, as an atheist, I believe that Africa needs God. Um, so he goes on to explain um, his thinking and, and the story uh, so he tells about how as a, he grew up as a boy in the country of Malawi. And now as a, an adult, as a politician, he went back to Malawi after 45 years to, to see what was happening with uh, different um, organizations and so on. And uh, he, he said this, he said, traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief, one I've been trying to banish all my life but it's an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs. It stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. So here's someone who he's, he's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, right? He, he's seeing, and I'll read, you'll see, he's seeing the evidence all around it and he's seen it from a child, but yet he's, it's like he's sitting on the lid and he's trying to hold the truth down and he's an atheist. 
He's, that's what he's claiming. So he goes on. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, non-government organizations, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. This is bizarre, thinking of who is writing it. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Here's a man, atheist. He's saying these things. He said, here's the observation. As a child, I stayed with friends who were missionaries in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement to the, with the world, a, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. So this is the memory of, a, of a, probably a 50-year-old man about what he saw about the changed lives of Christians, but yet he's still claiming to be an atheist. He goes on. He said, whenever, and this is now talking about his trip, his return um, to, to Malawi to visit. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes, the way they approached you direct, man to man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards, or, you know, just putting off strangers. Then he goes on, and he said, um, this is the line I'm really getting to, getting to. What they were was influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. So, again... Uh, he's seeing this radical change. He's going into regions in, in the country of Malawi in Africa, and he's seeing where in these regions where there were missionaries, he was seeing the impact on the community. People were different, and they were interacting with you differently. They no doubt had heard the message of the God of the Bible and, and heard, you know, the gospel that God so loved the world and, and gave himself for them. They, and, and so uh, they, they recognized that there was value to the human soul, that their lives had purpose and meaning and significance. And, uh, and I just, I find this extraordinary that, you know, he would write this headline, as an atheist, I believe that Africa needs God. He saw, he saw the value um, in, in, uh, in people's lives. So all that to say, in summary on the first point, um, when we have a conception of the glory of God and that, that we, have, we, have been, we, we are linked to his glory in some magnificent way, 
I mean, this isn't even bringing in the whole aspect of the fact that we have been brought into his family through the work of Christ. That, that's another whole mind-blowing thing. Um, made children of God, sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in the family. Uh, that's, it, it's just, it's overwhelming. It's amazing. But it does, the point being that as we consider the glory and the splendor of God, um, it, it does something, it helps us to understand uh, our worth in his sight and, and the, the value of, of other people. 1 Corinthians 1, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. And we will see that there's another way that glory and understanding and enjoying the glory of God will impact us. Um, this this aligns with Psalm 96 and what I read with read earlier. Um, God has chosen this is Psalm, or rather, First Corinthians 1 and verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And putting that together with Psalm 96, give unto the Lord the glory that is due his name. In Leviticus, there's the story of Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu? They were some of the uh, young priests who came into the presence of God just when the tabernacle worship was being first established. They came into the presence of God. We don't know a lot of detail other than it says that they came in with profane fire um, to, to, to light the, the altar um, and the, the um, incense and so on. It says they came in with profane fire. And what happened? God, God struck them down. Uh, they, they died in the presence of the Lord. And uh, Moses and Aaron, of course, are there. And, and um, God says to, to Moses, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And, and before all the people, I must be glorified. I must be given what I deserve. That's the first time this word is, is used in the in the Bible uh, in relation to God, this word glory, I'm, I must be glorified. Um, A.W. Tozer, again, old writer, preacher, he said, we were created to worship. Worship is the normal employment of moral beings. Worship is not something which can be manufactured, at least true worship. It is a reaction with in the human soul to the revealed person and glory of God. It's a reaction. So just like you touch a stove and it's hot and you react, there's something within you that physically reacts. Our worship should be the, the spiritual reaction, the spiritual response uh, to encountering the glory of God and, and being uh, being. Uh, Again, seeing the glory of God, it's a, it's a reaction of the human soul. So, yeah, if a ball is thrown at us, uh, most of us uh, hopefully will react, we'll, we'll swat it away, we'll, we'll react. 
um, when we come to the scriptures and we see people who are encounter the glory of God, the presence of God, what is their reaction? They're down on their face on the ground. And, and we read all, I mean, Moses himself in uh, Exodus, just after the passage I was reading in, in Exodus the 33, please show me your glory. Um, in chapter 34, in verse 8, glory of God on display. What does it say there? Moses made haste. That's the old, the New King James. Made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Boom. That was his response. Uh, Second Chronicles, the glory of God came into the uh, temple when the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. Joshua 5, uh, Joshua encounters uh, this uh, captain of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, and what happens? He falls on his face to the ground in worship. John, in Revelation 1, um, he encounters the, the risen Christ, and we have that description of him there and how he was clothed and the light from his eyes and so on, and what does it say? He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Worship is the the spontaneous spontaneous reaction of the soul uh, towards the glory of God. So what happens when we lose sight of his glory, when we're not enjoying uh, his glory, when we're not spending time in his presence, uh, seeing Christ in, in the scriptures, and we're we're growing cold in that sense. What, what happens to our worship? Well, we, we know what happens to our worship, don't we? we it gets pretty lifeless. It, it gets hard. Um, it's not enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard work to manufacture some kind of response or reaction. And, and sometimes we, we get used to that and we think, well, there's something wrong with the format of our service. We're, and I'm not advocating for any specific format, but we just, that's, we're like, we don't want to address the, rea the reality that maybe we're cold spiritually. There's something wrong here. I've got to change it up so that we, we, we have a, an emotional response. And, and um, that can be a real problem if we lose sight of uh, and we, we stop enjoying uh, the glory and the person of, of Christ uh, on display. Uh, Ezekiel again tells us about a time how, when, uh, and this was right around the same time as the glory of God I mentioned earlier was departing from the temple. It says just before that, that Ezekiel was taken uh, by vision into the, the actual temple. And he said, I was taken into a room and into the inner court of the Lord's house. Remember, this is the Lord's house. <laughs> and, and it says there that there at the, the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. So you get that picture. There they, there they are. Um, the, the, the altar is there, the Shekinah presence of glory. And, and rather than bowing in their faces flat out on the ground in the presence of God. They are, they've got their backs turned and what are they doing? It, it says here in, in Ezekiel, he says their faces were towards the east and they were, they were worshiping the sun. 
So what's happening, they, they're no longer worshiping the creator, they're wor worshiping something that's created and they've made an idol out of what's created. And I mean, isn't that, isn't that a reflection of the heart of man again and again and again? And how quickly, I mean, Kurt was saying it earlier, how, how quickly you can leave a building like this. And we've been talking about the glory of God and the beauties of Christ and, and how quickly every one of us, preacher included, can walk out the door and we can get caught up with, with the things of this life, the, the created things. Um, and, and they become exalted into a place in our life that they shouldn't. And, and the, the glory of God and the wonder of who he is and what he's like drops way down here while we get caught up with everything that's created. And we're no different than, than these in Ezekiel 6 or in Ezekiel 8. It affects our worship. Uh, a, a writer in a, doesn't matter who it was, but he made a comment. Uh, he said this, we always pay dearly for chasing what is cheap. We always pay dearly for chasing what is cheap. Well, we, we always complain about stuff we buy in China, you know, made in China. Um, but when it comes to spiritual things and spiritual realities, it's, it's even more true. Um, we pay dearly for chasing what is cheap. The Apostle Paul said that he's going to sacrifice uh, all things uh, for the for the highest goal of knowing Christ and by extension seeing his glory somebody has said this that most believers sacrifice the knowledge of Christ in their pursuit of all things so again uh, our worship or rather our our um, concept of the glory of God will impact our worship very practically um, it impacts our understanding of, of worth and human dignity. But Psalm 96, again, talks about um, declaring unto the nations his glory. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all people. And again, I, as I said earlier, it, that, it's that idea of recounting one by one um, to, to, you know, sometimes sing the, or I used to sing the song, uh, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Well, this is uh, count the, the glories of God and name them one by one. That's what we're, we're supposed to be doing, expressing, um, expressing to the nations, expressing to those around us the, the, the marvelous works and wonder of God. Psalm 9 says this, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. Tell of what God is, is like. Years ago, I heard a man by the name of Kirk Durston. He was, uh, he is, um, he's a very, like, very intellectual. Um, is an academic um, he studied and was part of the research that, that found the DNA strand of the human body and that kind of thing. He's like way up there. If you look, I looked at his, uh, his bio the one time. He's got his PhD at the University of Guelph in biophysics. And it says that he, I don't even understand this next line. It says that he specializes in the identification, quantification, and application of functional information to protein structure. I have no idea what he does. Um, 
and it doesn't really matter. But what matters is that the reason he pursued all of this is because he's a follower of Christ and, and loves the Lord, and he wanted to be engaged with students and have a ministry to students. And so he thought, if I, if I get an education that kind of gets up here, um, you know, with all of the atheists that are teaching in the universities, if I can be, get up here and, and, and preach truth and, and so on, maybe that'll be helpful. And maybe in my student ministry, he was part of what he called, or they called the New Scholars Society, which was part of Campus Crusade for Christ. And so I heard him preaching and, and uh, he said something along these lines as, as he discovered, you know, all of these things that he had learned and so on. But he's, he made this passing comment and I thought it was interesting. He said, at the end of the day, he said, students couldn't care less about this kind of stuff about the quantification and calculation and application of protein structure and DNA and all that. He said this, he said, what we need to do as Christians is figure out what we're excited about and be able to communicate that in 30 seconds. That will be our best testimony. That'll be our most effective testimony. And so even though he had risen in the ranks of academia and he could argue with the best, um, what he recognized, what students wanted to hear was what he was passionate about, what he was excited about, and, and that he, he had a ready answer on his tongue. He was able to tell people uh, about the Lord and, and that he was excited about the Lord and what he knew about the Lord. And I, it's, it was a reminder for me, like, like we need to, we need to know what we're excited about and, and be ready to communicate it. How many of us, I, I'm guilty, find ourselves stumbling um, when we encounter somebody where we're, I don't know, at the gas station or in the mall or wherever we are and we encounter somebody, we've never met them before in this random conversation um, and we think after, oh, you know, should have said something, should have... But to, to think about it in advance and say, okay, this, this, is what, this is what I'm excited about and here's what I'm going to say. My point being that, um, that our understanding of the glory of God and our appreciation of the glory of God not only will, will start to transform our lives and, and our worship will be spontaneous, but, but our, our witness will, will be will be um, real, it'll be, it'll be something that is attractive to others. And Peter says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you're his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So our, our worth, our value as a human being, our, our witness, or no, our worship, our witness, I gotta keep the W's going, um, our walk, Isaiah 6. We won't take time to turn to it. You remember the account where Isaiah is caught up into the presence of the Lord and, and we, we hear what Isaiah sees, holy, holy, holy. We sang that this morning. Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and, and the it says there that the posts of the door were shaken. The house was filled with smoke. And, and um, what, what were those seraphim, what were they saying? Well, again, um, the word holy means set apart or other. 
and these these angelic beings were were looking they were seeing God on the throne and and uh, the Lord Jesus there and and they were saying he's other he's other he's other he's not like us he's not like us we're all as as splendid splendid beautiful as the seraphim are we've never seen them and as powerful as they are and, and everything else these angelic hosts they're they're standing around the throne and they're looking at the glory of God and they're saying he's other holy he's other he's set apart he's he's different than us he's the uncreated creator we're we're the creature and they recognize that and they're proclaiming his otherness his his holiness uh, holiness, of course, he's separate from sin, but it's more than that. He's separate from everything that is created. He's not a created being, and so they're proclaiming and they're worshiping. What did Isaiah say as he's witnessing? You know it. He said, woe is me. I'm undone. He said, I am, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Someone has said, you cannot look into the face of God and remain unchanged. And so that's exactly what uh, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. We look into the, the face of the Lord Jesus and we see his glory. We're transformed from from glory to glory. When we get caught up with comparing ourselves with each other, um, we can make ourselves feel pretty good because we'll always find the people that aren't doing quite as well as we are, right? We'll always, if we want to elevate ourselves and kind of feel important and feel spiritual, we'll, we'll find the others that are over here. Uh, we never go to those real spiritual giants. Well, sometimes we do. Um, and then we feel inferior and we feel, you know, everything else. And so we get caught up comparing ourselves with each other and the Bible says that's not, that's not a good thing to get involved in. We want to be starting to compare. Um, let's look into the face of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And uh, we'll all recognize that we fall so far short of the glory of God. And that the, the only reason we have hope and a future and a relationship with him is because he, by his grace, has reached down and rescued us. From a, from a destination, from, from an eternity in hell that, that is where we deserve to be as, as, reject, as those who reject the glory of God. And so, again, uh, it transforms the way we live our lives. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and I'm almost done here just for your encouragement, you were bought at a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. William MacDonald, in his commentary, said, Christians are often faced with the decision about a certain course of action. Is it right or is it wrong for them? And he gives this advice. He said, here's a good rule to apply. Is there any glory for God in it? If we can bow our head before participating in whatever it is, and ask the Lord to be glorified through it, that'll be a pretty good safeguard. If, if, we're, if we're walking into something or if we're about to view something or if we're about to hang out with a certain group and, and we 
and we know that God is not being going to be glorified with it. That that should impact. That should be the the measuring stick about whether we we go ahead with something or whether we don't. Uh, God says in Isaiah forty three, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Finally, Philippians. 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven. This is verse 20 of Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, body of glory, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, um, he says, flesh and blood cannot enter into the presence of God. Can't, our physical, broken bodies cannot enter into heaven. But we are going to be transformed and we are going to be made like his son. We are going to be transformed into his glorious body. We will be, we will be uh, resurrected with glorious resurrection bodies. And, and John says in 1 John, when we see him, we will be like him. Amazing. For we will see him as he is. Um, we will be with him. We will be like him. That's amazing. And so as we think about, this is the last W, our wait. We're waiting. We're waiting to be transformed. It's our anticipation. The, the hymn writer says, and is it so, I shall be like thy son. And he goes on and says, is this the grace for which he has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought, in glory to his own blessed likeness, brought that's that's what we're looking forward to uh, this this final transformation this final work of grace in our lives when we will be absent from the body present from the lord separated from sin once and for all uh, to be like the lord jesus we shall all be changed and so the glory of god uh, has major implications for our lives. Uh, it has it has an impact on on our sense of worth and the fact that we are encircled, we're crowned with glory and honor. We are linked to this glorious being in the heavens. He thinks about us, and not only thinks about us, he has enacted a rescue plan of salvation for us. Um, our worship spontaneous reaction as we encounter the glory of God afresh. It causes us to worship our witness, telling others about him, declaring his glory among the nations. Our walk, it should cause us as we consider his holiness and his, and his absolute separateness from sin. Uh, we, in every way, should do everything we can to separate ourselves from sin as his children. Uh, we've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in our bodies and spirits. And then finally, our weight as we look forward. Uh, Paul says in Col uh, Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, 
then we also, or you also, will appear with him in glory. Will appear with him in glory. That's not a place. That is kind of, but it's a. What Paul is saying is, it's a. It's a state. Uh, we will be glorified. Uh, we will. We will be separate from sin. We will appear with Christ in glory. Uh, an amazing thing. An amazing thing. The grace of God. The glory of God, and so I trust that in some way this little study on the glory, personal glories, moral glories, look to the heavens, we see what, who God is, we look to the person, the face of Christ to see what God is like. Let me pray. Father, we're yeah, again just so grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us and so much more than that. Uh, you have chosen to link yourself with us and, and not in some kind of a business transaction, but you sent your very own son, uh, the, the eternal son of glory who shared in your glory from eternity past. Uh, you sent him into this world uh, to take on our likeness as a human being. And ultimately he would go to the cross where he would bear uh, our sin in his own body on the tree so that we could be forgiven and restored back to a relationship with you. Father, what an amazing thing to, to think that, that we are not just uh, business partners in a, in a business, some kind of a legal transaction, but, but you've brought us into the family. Uh, heirs of God, joint heirs, even with your son, Jesus Christ. Amazing. You've been so gracious, so good to us. Help us to be a people that never lose the wonder. We know there are some here who are celebrating spiritual birthdays. Years go by so quickly. May our appreciation of the glory of God only grow and expand until all, all limitations are removed and we see you face to face. So help us to go out and help our walk to be pure and our witness to be spontaneous and our worship to, to just be real. And Lord, uh, until that day when we will be in your presence. So we pray this all uh, for your glory in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.